finding an experienced, trustworthy, well-capitalized general contractor and setting it up where your incentives are aligned and you're breaking up the profit somehow. I would say even just splitting the profit. And like anything, if you want to learn something new, finding the subject matter expert tends to be the way to do that. Are you ready to transform your life? This is a no-nonsense show helping immigrants like you create generational wealth, even while working full-time. Get ready to take notes. Here's your host, Socket Jane. My great to wealth listeners, if you want to manage real estate, maybe you're ready for a lifestyle change. By selling your real estate, of course, you may have to pay substantial cap and gain taxes. One option that may help solve this is to learn about doing a 1031 tax deferred real estate exchange. Because you may be able to defer all of the capital gain taxes, and you could even exchange into a replacement property that may allow you to get rid of all of the headaches involved with being an active landlord. Ray DeWitt is a managing director with Bantanger Financial Services, and his goal is to help you understand all the rules associated with the 1031 exchanges. To learn more, visit their website at bantangerfinancial.com and browse the library of education material. Please be sure to see the disclosures and show notes. Welcome back, Migrate to Wealth listeners. Today, we'll be talking to somebody who is in the land and development business. The company he goes by is Front Range Land, Dane Habercus. Dane, how are you, buddy? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm good, man. And I have to say that I love Dan so much that they were re-recording this episode because the first episode <laughs> didn't come out right. The sound yeah. quality was pretty crazy. So we're like, you know what? What's, the content is great. Dan's story is amazing. So why don't we just go ahead and re-record? So Dan, welcome to the show once again. And I'm thanking you for taking the time out of your busy schedule. I know you're a busy man. Sure. Yeah. No, thanks for having me. It's always fun chatting with other real estate professionals. Awesome. Dan, let's start with when you hear the term migrate to wealth, what does that mean to you? Mm, I think it represents a moving from the traditional mindset around just getting a W-2 job, saving you know a penny every year and trying to retire with not a whole lot in the bank when you're 65 yeah. years old, going from that sort of mindset to an understanding. For me, it was when I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad that caused this shift in my mindset so to use that as an example, shifting from the mindset I described to an understanding of how to build wealth in a much quicker time frame and, and create a level of freedom in your life that isn't really in line with traditional norms. That's what I think of when I hear your podcast name. When you hear the term wealth, what does that mean to you now versus traditionally? Simply put, to me, that means having your priorities actually be your priorities. And in order to do that, you have to have money. So you have freedom over your time, right? Ultimately, because many people have to prioritize what their boss wants every day because yeah. they're stuck. I love that, man. So let's actually go deeper if that's okay with you, Dan. When you said, and I'm paraphrasing it, living the life that you want to live, right? That's how I heard you. So when you say that, what does that mean? Because that's philosophically, it makes a lot of sense. What does it really, really, really mean to you? Well, for me, it means that business is not at the top of my priority list. Work is not at the top. My hobbies and the people I care to spend time with are at the top of my priority list. And business comes second or third to those. And so I take trips all the time, see family, go travel with friends, go snowboarding, surfing, that sort of thing. And I do that when I want to do that. And that to me is what having freedom over your control over your life really means. I love that. And you think that I know the answer. It's a rhetorical question. The mm -hmm. nine to five can't do that to you. The context behind the question really is, is business the only route or are there other routes to get there? And of course, nine to five is definitely not the route to get there. 
right? You don't own your time. And nine to five is never nine to five. We all know that nine to five ends up becoming nine to nine, which is essentially 12 hour days for most of mm-hmm. us. So it's never nine to five. Sure. It's a part, so it definitely doesn't work as a full time. What's a part time option? What's the other options that we can think of? Sure. So there are some jobs where they're fully remote and you just have a set list of things you have to do and you can do them whenever. So if you have that sort of role, potentially you could make it work, but it is hard to have that sort of freedom with any sort of traditional job. I knew it was a rhetorical question. I think the answer really is none because what we're talking about is we're talking about a lifestyle that's not deliverable driven, right? That is Mm -hmm. if something has to be done tomorrow, you're okay canceling the entire day and do what you need to do without worrying about the impact of that decision. That's really his mm-hmm. ultimate freedom, right? If I ask you that question today, Dan, I don't think you're there. I don't think I'm there. We're very close to mm-hmm. there because, yes, we have our own businesses running. We're running businesses. You can't just drop everything tomorrow. But mm-hmm. what you can do is you can plan ahead, way ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And making sure, hey, you know what, I need to make a trip. And like, for example, I'm taking the girls, I have two girls, I'm taking the two girls out to Maui for two weeks in September. It's just Mm -hmm. me and them, no one else, right? I know it now. Now I was thinking about it, that if I had work right now, if I was W-2, I have no guarantees that I can get those two weeks off, even if I plan ahead. Because the Mm -hmm. work deliverables may prioritize my life. But in this case, the girls are going to be off. So I'm like, you know what? Those two weeks, I'm not working, period. Done. All my meetings are getting rescheduled. And if they don't want to reschedule it, the meeting is getting canceled. Done. Mm -hmm. So I could plan ahead on that. So I think to answer the question that I asked you is really, we're talking about the ultimate freedom where you control everything that you do. And also, it has the the negative aspect on your finances is also very minimal. Right, because you structured mm-hmm. your life such a way that your life's not depending on one business or one stream of income or one thing that you're doing. You're creating multiple streams of streams of income. Hopefully, a lot of them are passive. That if you're not mm-hmm. working and showing up to work, the income sustain income stream, the cash flow is still getting generated, and you're still getting to live the life you want. What are your thoughts on that? I agree. I think that's a good way of putting it. And you're right in that it's it's very difficult to have any sort of traditional job and create that. And you're right in that I am not fully to the point where I can just disappear for two weeks without any ramifications to my bottom line. I can go on vacation for two weeks and you know check email and phone once a day, respond to a few things. But if I were to just disappear completely for two weeks, that would be a problem. So I don't have fully systemized and have not fully made my business passive by any means. Not yet. Not yet. The keyword is yet. Mm-hmm. That yep. doesn't mean you can't, but as a job, you can't make yourself a passive. I don't really have a problem with the way things are set up right now. I'm having a blast with business. It's a lot of fun. So I'm That's not perfect. really in a hurry to go sit on a beach and do nothing. I, yeah, I, no, I agree. My mind. So <laughs> let's also talk about that, right? Because when people think that we're talking about creating freedom, they think in their head that we're talking about people becoming beach bumps. That's not what we're saying, mm-hmm. right? Because no. you want to be productive members of the society. You want to produce, you mm-hmm. want to add value. All we're saying is, you're doing it because you're enjoying it. You're not dreading waking up in the morning saying, oh, damn, I have to go attend this eight o'clock pulse check. I hate my life. I don't want to get up to like 7.45. You're sitting in the bed, lying in the bed and just show up with a cup of coffee at eight o'clock. That's not life. You may be there today, but there's a better way of living. What we're talking about creating freedom is you're doing what you really, really, really enjoy to do. Like in your example, you like what you're doing. You're having a lot of fun, 
there's nothing wrong in being busy. Mm-hmm. But you also control yeah. the time that you can take off, right? So you're again living mm-hmm. the life the way you want to live. For some, it could mean beach bum. For some, it could mean mm-hmm. being more busy than W2. For some, it could mean just having the flexibility, whatever that means. You need to figure out how to get there, right? That's really what the concept of wealth is. It's not making a billion dollar. If you become make a billion dollar, great. But that's not the goal. The goal is to design the life that you want to live. Agreed fully. Agreed 100%. I think that was well said. So tell us, how are you doing that for yourself? Sure. Front Range Land, as you mentioned, is my active business, and that's all land and development. And big picture, let's say you're newer, you're not sure how to create some measure of wealth, as we described it, in your life. One thing I think a lot of people get wrong is they go and they try and start buying passive real estate Mm -hmm. without having figured out how to make money. And you can buy a house hacker too. Or of course, you can find a partner who has a lot of money and you go find the deals. But one way or another, you need capital to buy passive investments. And of course, you need to be able to find them. And so Front Range Land for me is the solution to that problem. It is my means of scaling my income so that I can continually buy actually or close to passive investments, right? I mean, rental real estate, and there's a spectrum here, certainly is never entirely passive, but you know, I think of some of the houses I have in the course of four or five years, it's only taken a couple hours of my time. So they can be close to passive. And if you go triple net, that can be pretty much passive. So point being, Front Range Land is my active land and development business. And if you think of just a giant marketing funnel going direct to seller for land that I buy 30 to 60 cents on the dollar, depending on what I'm going to do with it, a lot of them we just buy and sell. And then some of them we put new construction on. So I have a number mm-hmm. right now that I'm going to put duplexes on a couple single family. And that is just a means for making money. And then that is what I take and then put into long-term buy and hold real estate. Wait, let's understand that. So let's unpack that. Traditionally, what we've been told is passive income to rental real estate is one of the golden gateways to creating passive wealth, correct? Mm -hmm. I think what we're saying is that is a very true statement. However, you need capital to buy. For it to produce cash flow, you need money to generate the money. Let's make it more contextual for people. A lot of us get a shock of our life when you see that the first rental property you invest in all it's throwing, and that's in good times, who knows what's going to happen in the recession times, that it's producing $200 to $300 per month. Yeah. We're like, what? All of that work, mm-hmm. the amount of paperwork I had to do, the amount of due diligence I had to do, it's for $200 mm-hmm. per month. Now, don't get me wrong, it's a lot of money, $200 a month. But in the grand schema, if you're trying to create financial freedom for yourself or enough passive income, you're probably looking at multiple of those homes right? Mm-hmm. And multiples of the homes, especially in the times right now, it's actually a great conversation because the liquidity in the market has gone tighter. You can't really go find a loan on a favorable term, which works in your favor and generate cash flow. You have to put a lot more down. You have a higher interest rate. The prices of the properties are high. The rents are getting capped up because they're already very high, right? So when you start looking at these numbers, is that $200, $300 per month, even a viable number, for now. Let's say that it is viable, right? So you bought a 200K, 300K, 400K property, and you put in over 80K to 100K into that property, depending upon what price point you bought it. And now it's producing two to $300 per month, which is all good, right? All great income. But now if you're going to repeat it, you need an additional 80 to 80 to 100K. 
and you need additional. So if you think about it, if you need, if each property is producing $200 per month and you need to hit $10,000 per month, that's a lot of homes, over 50 yeah. homes, right? Yeah. So for 50 homes, you need to put about 100K. Well, we're approximating these numbers. You need a lot of money to make sure that you can buy that many properties. And not, a, not some people maybe some people may have that initial capital. Now, there are ways to hack it. This is not an episode where we're going to deeper into how to buy properties creatively. Most people are going to look at well, how much capital they have to buy the property. So now what you're saying is when you had that problem, you tackled it differently because you figured out an asset class which can solve both of your problems. One was understanding that asset class gives you enough leverage that if you can just change the transaction's hand. You buy something and you are changing hands in a very short time frame. It gives your capital the acceleration it needed. So you mm-hmm. put an 80K, you're able to get 160, 200, 100, depending on what you buy. You're able to accelerate that capital, which is great. But not only that, which you can invest in something else, but you're also saying is if you bought the right piece of asset, you're able to add more value in this, in your case, by building a duplex, quadplex, or whatnot. And then some of them you can sell and some of them you can keep for long-term hope. Is that what you're describing? Did I capture it correctly? Yes, overall, absolutely. And one co- or other point I wanted to make, even if you do figure out the creative strategies to buy with no money down, say seller financing. I have a house I bought on seller financing, 100% finance, nothing down. Or I know a guy who's built a whole portfolio on sub two. You still need capital. Things are going to go wrong. And so even buying at 0% down, you need cash. So I just want to make that point. We don't have to belabor that point. Yes. So land and then, of course, the development side of that land does solve multiple problems. So I think that was well said. So let's go deeper into land. Mm -hmm. When I think about land, I'm thinking about the community I'm living in. I'm like, you know what? What's the hottest piece of land that I can buy? It's going to appreciate if I just sit on it for the next 10 years or five years or two years. And when I, look, when I think about that, that scares me. When mm-hmm. I think about that model, that scares me because it's a lot of money. Because if I'm buying mm-hmm. around a place that I'm living in, chances are if I want to raise a family in a certain area, the land's already super expensive. And the holding costs can be too expensive because I can't produce cash flow from those lands. So it's just going to be mm-hmm. sitting, my capital is going to locked in for two years, 10 years, 20 years, who knows? At some point it may work out or on the flip side, it may not work out. So the, when, mm-hmm. I, when I look at the risk, it's pretty high. But I also know the model that you work in, which I really love. So help us understand how did you have that paradigm shift on not buying the parcels that are going to be a million dollars an acre or maybe $5 million an acre. We're not buying in the heart of New York, for example. Sure, just sure. Give, just to give people a perspective because everyone's coming from a different mm-hmm. city. How are you cracking that code on the land and still making profit without risking a lot? Okay. There's several points I want to make here. So number one, everyone needs to understand I'm not touching raw land. So you made a good point there. You're talking about a lot that's in an established neighborhood. That's the type of land I go after. It has entitlements, right? You can put a single family or a multifamily, depending on the zoning, maybe a commercial building. Utilities are in place. I'm not touching raw land, which is a whole different conversation. Number two, I like and have found most of my success in second or third level markets outside of major metros. Mm. And so an easy example, the markets I've been in the longest, Pueblo West, Colorado. For anyone that knows Colorado, you have Denver is, of course, the biggest city right along the front range. You go an hour south, you have Colorado Springs, which is the second largest city. 
you know, half a million people. And then another hour south, you have an old industrial town called Pueblo. And to the west of that is Pueblo West, commutable to Colorado Spring, commutable to Pueblo. And it's a third level market that was uh, done in the 70s. It's just a big subdivision that was done in the 70s. Same developer that did Lake Havasu for anyone who knows where that is just 10 years later. These are ready to be built on. Certain parts of the subdivision have water and sewer. Some parts, it's just water and you put in a septic. Powers run throughout it, right? Streets, roads, everything's done. Those are the sort of markets where I have focused. So it's infill. It tends to be smaller, quarter acre, half acre, acre lots in existing subdivisions, not in the middle of Denver or New York or Seattle. These are tend to be tertiary markets. That's where I've had the most success. And then to your point about just buying a lot and sitting on it, I'm not ever doing that. I'm buying land at a discount. If I'm intending just to buy and sell it, generally, you know, 30 to 55 cents on the dollar. If it's a really prime lot to build on, I might pay a little bit more. You know, I got a really nice one in Pueblo West last month. I really wanted to put a duplex there because it's surrounded by single family homes, yet it has the zoning for a duplex. So, you know, I probably paid 70 cents on the dollar for that one because I'm going to actually put a new build on it and it's a really nice lot. So with the buying and selling, that's as quick as 30 days sometimes, sometimes even faster from when I close and when I resell, or it could be, you know, six months. And then on the building side, that can be six months to a year, depending on the number of factors. Dan, a lot to unpack. Let's slow down. Just okay. to make sure everyone understands if you got another second nature to you. We threw out a few terms. I want to make sure people mm-hmm. understand that. Raw land versus infill lands. Mm-hmm. What are they? Can you help us understand? Like, just break down for us what the difference between these lands are. What is entitlement? There are a lot of different terms. I want to make sure that everyone can understand that and follow our conversation. Yes. Okay. Great question. So, Using Colorado as an example, if you go way out east of Colorado Springs, there's all kinds of old farm fields out there. And that is raw land, right? I can't just go build a strip center out there, right? It's not a use by right. There's a big process, a long process you have to go through with the city or county, depending on where you are, to take a raw piece of land like a farm field and turn it into developed land where You have a section maybe of single family and a section of commercial and then a section of multifamily, right? That's a process where you work with a civil engineering firm to first get the approval for Mm -hmm. the plat that you want to go with. So that's what I was just describing. The plat is when you go on a GIS and you look at a subdivision, you see the streets and roads and the lots and you see, oh, okay, this is the zone commercial, this is zone residential. You have to work with a civil engineering firm and then the county or city to create that and then get it approved and make sure it's in line with what they will allow, with what they can support. And then along with that, this is a big conversation because what you're doing as far as utilities is another question, but let's just pretend you wanted public water sewer served by the city. Well, you got to make sure the city has the capacity to service all these new lots you want to create. You got to make sure that the cost is something you can afford, right, to bring in, to extend all those sewer, water, power, gas, et cetera. And so you're doing that with the civil engineering firm and the city or county. Let's just say, great, all of it works out. They approve your plat map. You get it recorded. And then it's officially on the county website at that point. And then you can go physically make it happen. You can bring in the streets and roads, the utility lines. And then once all that's done and that physical plat now exists in reality, then you can start building. And so let's say I did that work. I have a big subdivision with thousands of lots, 
plats recorded. I have my commercial section, my residential section, and so on. That is an infill lot, right? If I go on Pueblo County and I look at an R1 lot within a subdivision, it says uses by right. I am able to go put whatever the zoning allows on that lot without asking anyone. I just have to go through the permitting process. So that is a developed, horizontally speaking, lot as opposed to the farm fields out east of Colorado Springs, that's raw land. Let me make sure that the life cycle of the land, it is raw, basically means mm-hmm. it's forest, raw, farmland, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. There's really nothing that you can build commercially viable on it. Somebody may build mm-hmm. their own home in it, that's fine. That's a different conversation, but we're not talking about that. If there's anything commercially you can build, so raw land, you turn that law, raw land and work with the county and whatever, and make sure there are utilities and everything else, you can figure that out. All of that gets packed up into some sort of a blueprint, get approved Mm -hmm. by the county. And then once that gets done, then you're starting to put the infrastructure. And once the infrastructure is in place, which is essentially the utility lines, the roads and everything else, at that point in time, when it's ready to be developed vertically, which essentially Mm -hmm. means you can put a single story or multi-story buildings on top of it, that's when that phase, when it's ready to go vertical, is called infill. Is that correct? Yeah, that's how I've always used the word. That's how I've heard it used. Of course, Perfect. many of these terms are generally shovel-ready, infill. These are the lots that all Got that it. horizontal work has been done, and you're ready to go build on it. And on this topic, watch out, guys, for subdivisions where the plat was recorded. They got to that point with the county or city, but none of the physical work was done. There's tons of examples like this. So Colorado City, Colorado, about an hour and a half south of Colorado Springs is a big subdivision done in the 60s where good portions of it, the roads were roughed in 60 years ago, but since then have not been touched. There's no utilities. There's no roads. But if you go on the county assessor site and you look at the map, it looks like there are roads because that plat was recorded. So watch out for that. So is that a good thing or a bad thing? Let's think about that. Since you use that example. One could say that there's an opportunity sitting because the plat's already been approved. Could somebody make money on that or that's to be avoided? No, that's a good question. I think of it as a bad thing because that specific market does not have nearly the demand to go and do that. But that could be potentially an opportunity if you find a subdivision like that right in the path of progress where there's a ton of growth, you could potentially go buy it and pick it up where it was left off. That could be an opportunity. Just that specific market I'm describing is certainly not. Got it. Perfect. So that's one piece of it. The second piece, you said that you don't touch raw land, mm-hmm. that you only touch infill. Is that your business model or that's a business model you recommend for most? And if yes, why? What I learned was all around putting houses initially when I was introduced to land, putting simple single family houses or duplexes on infill lots. And so I have plenty of friends that take raw land and develop it. It's just not my business model. It's a different business. There's more to it. So nothing wrong with it. I'm not saying my model's better. It's just not what I know. Not that you know. Perfect. And where is the most amount of value created, Dan? At which phase? Converting raw to infill or going from infill to vertical? Where is most amount of value created? If somebody has to look. And also, where is the most amount of capital needed? Both are important, right? Because mm-hmm. depending upon who is listening to this episode, they may have mm-hmm. access to millions of dollars or they may have access to hundreds of thousands, or they may have access to none. Like somewhere in this range, everyone's going to fit. So I'm trying to figure out, trying to give them a perspective. If they had $100,000, they should go raw land versus if they have $100,000, should they go vertical? 
How should people think about it if they have never thought about land? So the capital question is easier. So I'll start with that one. It absolutely takes more capital to take big piece of raw dirt and turn it into a subdivision. That is capital mm. intensive and it takes time and effort and pain in the butt. Again, like everything, it is a spectrum. There are some parts or some counties where it's much easier than others. I'll tell you in El Paso County here, Colorado Springs, it is pretty easy to take a thousand acre ranch and turn it into 35 acre pieces. But if you want to split that down further, then it becomes challenging. So there's, of course, nuance to that conversation. But generally, I can't really give a blanket answer to that because there's so much, again, nuance to that conversation. You know, are you taking a 10,000 acre ranch and turning it into a giant subdivision? Or are you taking, you know, a 30 acre parcel and turning it into 10 lots? Versus are you just building a single family spec house or are you building out, you know, 50 of them? You create a lot of value in either scenario. So I don't really have a good answer to that question. Intuitively, I would have thought that the word going up is going to cost more money. But that's interesting. You said it differently. Now, if you're only going one floor versus 20 floors, that's different cost. Completely agree. But intuitively, I would have thought that going up will be more costly. But I can see a perspective where you're saying that converting a raw piece of land into making it shovel-ready, the risk is higher, right? Because the plat and the blueprints and everything else that you're working on they may not get approved, the county may not have the capacity and all that good stuff, and you bought something that you may not be able to deliver. Is that a risk you see in raw land? Oh, definitely. Potentially. Again, a lot of variation here, depending on what part of the country, price points, who you're working with, you of know, course. what official you're working with. But it is a problem. I've watched this with, I have an acquaintance who's doing a big project like this in Pueblo, Colorado, and it has taken him years and years. And he just got the plat recorded this year. Well, mm-hmm. for a specific section of it, because there's multiple phases. And I just think about how long he's been working on that and how much the market has changed. And of course, it's ended up still being a pretty strong year, but you are definitely exposed to a lot of risk and just having an idea of the amount of capital he has into that, that's been yeah. at risk, the debt service on that, that's an intimidating prospect. But all this to say, the same can be true of building vertically, depending on what you're building. Because there's a bunch of apartment buildings coming to fruition here in Colorado Springs right now that were initially started years and years ago. And they're going to get in trouble. There is way, way too much small apartment inventory coming online. You know, big apartment complexes with, what's the word I'm looking at? Studio apartments, one bedroom apartments. I would bet a lot of money there's going to be some pain there. So it depends as always. Yeah. And thanks for helping us understand that. If somebody were to try their hand into land and the development piece of it, how would you ask them to do? What's a framework you would help them understand these two pieces with? So the biggest thing I'd say is on the building side, vertical construction, finding an experienced, trustworthy, well-capitalized general contractor and setting it up where your incentives are aligned and you're breaking up the profit somehow. I would say even just splitting the profit. And this, like anything, if you want to learn something new, finding the subject matter expert tends to be the way to do that, right? And so I would start with infill. And I'd find a market where there's a lot of demand, very entry level Mm -hmm. houses are flying off the shelves. There's plenty of those in Florida. And I would go learn a bit about about the market, figure out what's selling, what sort of floor plan, who's buying, figure out the situation with the land, right? Where do I go find an area that has water, sewer, power, gas all right there? Go buy a nice, flat, simple infill lot and then find a contractor to partner with on the construction where you say, hey... I'm going to finance this. I've got the land. I just need you to build it and help me through the process so I can learn. We'll split the profit at the end. 
that's how I would recommend doing it. And Dan, I'm going to put you on the spot here. So feel free, yeah. feel comfortable to say you don't know the answer, but depends is not going to be a right answer. So let's say we're talking about a piece of land that we bought it for 100K. I'm making all these numbers up to make your life simpler. It's a 100K lot and that it's an infield lot and you can put a single family home that can sell for 500K, mm -hmm. right? On that lot. Mm -hmm. What are the profit margins looking at for somebody who actually went through the process of acquiring the land Knowing what you know today, right? take all the variabilities out, make some generic statements, because I understand that I don't want to quote you on this episode saying mm -hmm. that Dan told me I'm going to make 50%, but I only made 10%. That's not mm -hmm. the purpose of this. I'm trying to give people some perspective that if they bought a 100K lot and you could sell a single, you can build a single family on top of it and sell it for 500K, what are they looking for in terms of the profit margins? And of course, you can say, is it a custom home and not home? Let's generalize everything, right? A general contractor grade, single family home. We're not talking about a super high end single family. How about I just give you a very specific example from my markets? Because oh, it that's does even better. And that's going to vary dramatically from place to place. That's so, even better. Pueblo West Colorado. I think we've got a pre-sale. We're on the verge of getting a pre-sale on a lot on Palomar Drive. We'll buy the lot a little higher. In the context of pre-sale, I'm fine with that. I've been buying these lots in the 15 to 20 range. We'll probably have to buy this one 25, 26 because the client that the realtor brought just likes the lot. So mm -hmm. that's fine if it's pre-sold. So 25-ish, 26 grand for the lot. We'll build a 15-ish, 100 square foot, three bed, two bath, two car garage, ranch on a crawl space, six foot crawl space. And that'll take us four to five months as far as construction, about a month to get the permit. And then she wants a little bit bigger. So call it 1,800 foot. We'll sell it at 400 and all in, we should be about 2 henish. And then you factor in all the fees on the HUD. We got to pay her realtor. We got to pay title insurance. There's going to mm -hmm. be some closing costs. My partner in this has his license, so we don't have to pay a realtor on our end. So call it factoring in those fees, budgeting for a little bit of a fudge factor. Should make 160, 170 grand on that. So let's break it down. So in terms of the capital going in, did you have to fund all of it? Or when you partner with no, somebody? Oh gosh. If you have a pre-sale, they'll finance you can get banks to finance everything other than the land. If you put the land in and it's pre-sold, very easy to get everything else financed. But it's cheap to get a permit in that market. So I'll pay for the plans and permits because it's not, not a big deal. Got it. You're basically looking at your land cost was about 25K. You loaned everything else, the amount that you were to build the construction. Mm -hmm. You've already sold it. So you know your exit is predefined because somebody's already bought it from you. So your risk on the downside risk on buying something, building something and not being able to sell has gone down drastically. So your all-in cost is probably after holding, including all the holding costs and everything is no more than 80 to 100K at max. Is that a fair statement? Oh, yes, absolutely. So there's a couple caveats I want to make here because this just varies so much. Number mm -hmm. one, my partner on this who actually builds it is ruthlessly efficient. Most people's building costs are a little bit higher than ours. Mm. Number two, depending on the market, the time and cost to get a building permit varies dramatically. There's a very right. specific, there are very mm. specific reasons I'm in this market. So number one, I don't even need a licensed architect to do the house plans, which is hilarious. So you need an engineer for the trusses, which the trust company has in-house yeah. and they do. You need an engineer for the foundation. So I paid mm -hmm. my engineer for that. But the actual plan, this part in the middle, I could go draw it myself in CAD. And so oh, I don't. Huh. But my point is I pay six-ish hundred dollars for the plans. 
I pay $1,000 for the foundation plan and then the trust company does the engineering upstairs. And so it takes three to four weeks to get a permit. And then I think, I forget the exact fees I pay to get the permit, but it's like $1,000 or $1,500. Now there's people, if you have listeners who build in Denver or Colorado Springs or a major metro, they probably don't even believe me. And that's why I'm in this market. So I mentioned Colorado City earlier. There are parts of Colorado City you just want to stay away from, but there's some demand down there in some of the nicer mm-hmm. parts. So I'm doing a build down there. I bought the land for $2,000. It has water, sewer power. It's between two nice houses, a little tiny bit gray, but almost completely flat. That's why I'm building there. It's the same county. So it's just as easy to get a permit, just as cheap to get the plans. My land costs and plan costs are almost nothing. It's quite literally going to be under $5,000 to do the plans, get the land and get the permit. And so this is a whole nother conversation without getting too far off the Mm -hmm. the main topic here. Pick your markets wisely. I made a post about this on social media because Colorado City, Pueblo West, they're not the nicest places I've ever been to, but who cares? Look at how easy people often don't weigh quality and price properly. Let me tell you a brief story and then I'll pause that emphasizes the point. I have an older friend who taught me the whole land and development business. And when I first met him, he took me to this house he owned in a rough part of Pueblo. And I look at him and I think, or I say, Rich, why do you own this? And he just smiles and he goes, I bought a non-performing note, foreclosed on it. I own this house for $7,000 all in. And that's why I own it. Because there are a few assets that are so bad, there's no price at which they make sense. And so to my point of the Colorado City plot, it's not the most exciting market, but it Houses will sell and I get the land for free. So that's why I built there. That's amazing. And now you always have pre-sale or that's once in a while? No. So that's how I learned to do this. But when the pandemic hit and commodity prices went crazy, doing that, I did them all on spec or speculation for a while where you build them and then sell them You know, once they're done. But pushing to go back to pre-sale because lumber has come way down and prices have stayed high while commodity fluctuations have calmed down. So now I'm very open to doing them. Now you're open to doing pre-sale again. Yes. Help people understand that I understand what the difference between pre-sale and spares. Help people understand that because I don't think most people, they may have bought a single family for themselves and builders would call them spec home. Spec home, most people may actually not know it's a speculation. Spec means speculation. Builder is betting on you liking the house as a buyer. Yes. And mm-hmm. that usually happens in the market, which is pretty hot where there's more demand than the supply. So it doesn't matter what the builders put out. If that's the only thing you can buy, that's the only thing you can buy. And you'll be less picky. Mm -hmm. But if it's a buyer's market, you're a little bit more picky. So help us understand what's the difference between how the economics, how the macroeconomics helping you determine whether you want to do a spec or a Mm pre-sale. So the biggest thing there is just, is there stability? So again, to use 2020 and 2021 as an example, there were a couple pre-sales we did where lumber went up so much from the time we signed the contract, the completion point, that they were not great, didn't make much money at all. And at the same time, the sales price and the appraised value by the time we closed on that thing, it had gone up. So that was a terrible time to be doing pre-sales. Whereas now, or when I first learned to do this 2018, 2019, it was more stable, you know, slight mm-hmm. increases, but nothing crazy. And so if we pre-sold it at this is funny in hindsight because you can't do anything near this now, but we'd pre-sell a simple 3-2 at 260. And the day it closes, it was still worth 260 
prices hadn't really changed as far as construction materials. So that is a great model when things are decently stable. Right. So I think let's put this thing to perspective. So what we're saying is if it's a pre-sale, you've already agreed on a sales price. And yes. unfortunately yes. at that point, and you've already in theory accounting for all your costs, that's how you came to the selling price to make sure that it all made sense. So you can't go back to the, I'm assuming at that, at least at that point, the way the contracts are written, you can't just say the, the lumber has doubled. So we're going to charge you more money on the house. The house is what it is. So not only you may not even break even, you may actually end up losing money on pre-sale in those markets where the cost of building homes go much higher. On the flip side of the spec, you've controlled the pricing. You're saying that I need to build this house. I'm going to pre-buy everything because I already know what to build. I know my construction cost and I'm going to put all these features into it. That's it. And nothing else beyond that. Now, but you're taking a risk because you're pricing it at a certain point and you're assuming that the market is going to stay active for the amount of time that you're going to take to build the house. So it's really a bet either ways. But depending upon where the macroeconomics is and where you think where the puck is going to go, you try to make a determination, a best guess on where you think is the right thing to do. Is that how you think about it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's a happy medium where you can start advertising it once it's framed in, once most of your costs are locked in, but it's not done. And sometimes you could get, because the idea is, right, you want to minimize your hold time, minimize interest paid on the loan. And so you can make that work where most of your costs are locked in by the time you're advertising it. You still mm. get it sold before finished. And so the day you get the certificate of occupancy, it closes. So there is a happy medium, but of course, easier said than done. No, I agree. Thank God, Dan. This is why I love this podcast, no matter who you're talking to. And our previous show that we recorded was a very different show. Yeah. I'm actually glad yeah. that the voice didn't work out because what we talked on this show was way more different than just talking about the land investing, which is great. So thank you again for, I mean, I can talk to you for this. We will do a webinar. I know you and I talked about it. We'll do with one of your good friends. We'll bring both of you guys in. We'll do a deep dive of how to invest in land and everything else. So I think this is a teaser to there's more coming. It's never done because the conversation that we just had it's a very short conversation to just spark your interest. It's not to tell you the entire business model because there's a lot that goes behind the scene. I want to make sure before you start making it, before my audience start to jump into a new business model, they have good understanding. So it's good enough to intrigue them, but keep them hanging for more, which is perfect. So Dan, thank you again for your time, buddy. Towards the end of our show, we usually end with two questions. The first question really is, if you were to rethink your life when you were launching yourself, let's say you're an 18, 19 year old, mm -hmm. between now, the lesson that you've learned now, what's one insight you can draw and share with your 18, 19 year old self that would accelerate their migration in life? Pick one business, pursue it aggressively, don't do anything else, and you can, financially speaking, get where you want to go. It doesn't even have to be real estate. Real estate's a great place to do it. But yeah, pick one thing get better than everyone else at it. Love that, man. Dan, and last question, buddy. Where do you think humanity as a whole needs to migrate in the next two decades? Oh, gosh, that's a big question. And I'm not sure how I answered it last time. Let me just speak more to the United States, maybe, because yeah, I don't know that's if fine. I can generalize to that degree. But I think there's going to be a big <laughs> shift in education and in employment where, mm -hmm. number one, traditional, and I'm getting kind of specific here because it's a hard question, but that's generally how good questions are. But 
I think education is going to get disrupted severely. I think the traditional model, the amount of debt you're going into just to go party for four years and really just get a piece of paper. I think that's going to be changed a lot. And I think there's going to be far more platforms like yours to teach people anything and everything. And then number two, I expect that employment is going to be more fractured or remote. Mm -hmm. The companies that get the best people provide kind of like our beginning of our conversation, freedom and flexibility and lifestyle to their employees. And that's where the best people go. So I know I went specifically to employment and education, but that's kind of what came to mind when you asked me that. I expect will happen well within my lifetime. Awesome, Dan. This is great, man. This is great. Where can people find you, buddy? DanHabercost.com or on any of the socials. And then Mason and I, who you had on the podcast recently, launched The Big Picture Blueprint, which is our podcast discussing everything to do with land, real estate, and business in general. Awesome, man. Dan, thank you again for your time, buddy. Really appreciate it. I can't wait to bring you back for the webinar where we'll be doing screen shares and more visual. Thank you. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Take care, buddy. If you got value from this episode, you might consider sharing this content with a friend. But most importantly, be sure to take action on what you've learned. One way you can take the next step is to connect directly with Socket on an investor call. That link is waiting for you in the show notes below. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Please consult your own advisors when making any investment decisions. Keep listening. We'll see you on the next episode.